From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Milady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. If you've got a question, pick up the phone and give us a call. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And if you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can see... That Father Brian Milady is live in living color in studio with us today. Yes. Miraculous, miracle of miracles. Yes. <laughs> you're here. So you're here visiting, uh, trying. You're trying to make a retreat for yourself. I'm trying to make a retreat for myself. But we won't leave you alone. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So you're trying to pray. So if you can't pray yourself, you can at least maybe instruct us a little bit on how to pray. Yeah, well, I thought I'd talk about prayer today because the gospel, for one thing, is the Lord's Prayer. And you remember, uh, this is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Lord is emphasizing the interior nature of prayer, like he does in all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. In other words, what a correct intention is. And he contrasts it with the pagans' prayers, don't babble on endlessly in your prayers. You know, some people have taken this to be um, uh, like the rosary. It's not. He's not talking about repetitious prayer. Uh, He's talking about the fact that the pagans thought that unless they named every god, that their prayer wouldn't be answered. And, of course, they had to inform the gods because the gods really didn't know what they needed or not until they, uh, they were informed as such by the uh, pagans. So Christ is asked also in another part of the gospel to teach his disciples how to pray, and he uses the Lord's Prayer. And it's interesting that the Lord's Prayer is like a compendium of what we're supposed to interiorly experience when we pray. Definitions of prayer are interesting in the past in our church. The classic one is the elevation of the mind and heart to God and the requesting of good things from him. Another definition, which would be Teresa of Avila's, is that prayer is a loving conversation among friends. Well, Christ, in contradistinction to all other forms of prayer and religions, begins his prayer with the intimate term Father. God is uh, personal and a father. 
and we do elevate our mind and hearts to him in the first three petitions, and then we request good things of him in the last four. Traditionally, the Lord's Prayer is divided into seven petitions. In fact, the new catechism, the structure it uses to examine the nature of prayer is the Lord's Prayer. And Christ doesn't say, these are the words you have to use. What he says is, this is the sort of thing it is. It's not the more you say, the better it is, and the more God you name, the better they are. It's the fact that you um, recognize who God is, and then you recognize his influence on your life. Some people have had a difficulty with the fact that the Lord, um, why does we need to tell him what we need when he already knows. Well, we don't inform God of our needs because he knows it's a no. We inform them of our needs, so we place ourselves personally in our personal life at his disposal and recognize that what we need, he alone can provide. And so this is a wonderful and beautiful combination of both the elevation of the mind to heart to God and requesting good things from him. And as to the efficaciousness of prayer, it's interesting that this passage in the gospel ends with forgiving other their trespasses uh, because St. Teresa considered this of Avila a cardinal sign that you're in the state of contemplation. She'd say, if you can't forgive others, it's not real. A part of the uh, depth of prayer involves as God forgives us, us forgive, uh, forgiving our neighbor. And if we can't forgive our neighbor, how can we expect God to forgive us? So it, it's important to know that there's a beautiful treatise in one of the readings of the Office of Readings by Tertullian where he says, even the birds stretch out their wings in the form of a cross. And all, all the world recognizes God in its own way, of course, not rationally, but in its own way as the source of all that we have and are. And our attempt to join ourselves to that is what prayer is about. We have a beautiful tradition in the Dominican order where in larger houses every night we have a procession in honor of the Mary um, uh, saying uh, the Salve Regina. And supposedly one of the early friars, when we said, uh, ergo, turn them most gracious advocate eyes toward us, saw a vision of Mary prostrating her for us in heaven before our Lord. And also the monastic choirs, they often incline and bow during the glory be to the Father at the end of a psalm. In this, we're supposed to be in our postures representing what creation does, all the angels and saints before the Father in the great vision of heaven. So. You know, um, whether it be an evangelical, any of our separated brothers, brothers and sisters, or uh, in our Catholic tradition, it, it is, it, it, sometimes the truth can become convoluted in its repetition because it is the truth and it continually gets repeated. And the more we hear it, the more we sort of get conditioned to hearing it. And oftentimes, regardless of the tradition, you will hear that the key to the spiritual life is prayer. 
People are looking for all of these wild formulas to get close to God, but the answer is always prayer. And simply giving your heart through, you know, is true petitionary prayer is the primary kind we're used to. But to uh, give ourselves completely over to our friend, that's why Teresa of Avila calls it a loving conversation among friends. And I think one of the beauties of our Catholic faith is that uh, some of the pressure has been taken off uh, because we have centuries of some of the most wonderful prayers that have ever been oh, uttered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that we don't have to rely on our own devices. We right. can kind of kickstart things, if you will, right. with that treasury of prayers that we have in the faith, huh? Right. Well, things like the Mysteries of the Rosary have, con- have been recommended for centuries. Now, today we have the Chapel of Divine Mercy, which I must admit I don't really know that much about. But um, these devices the church has approved to help us. Yeah. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Dominic in Pennsylvania, Marie in Washington, and we've got plenty of time and a couple of open lines for you at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And put Father Milady or Thursday in the subject line, and it will get to the appropriate folder. Again, 833-288-EWTN. It's our toll-free number. It's an absolutely free phone call anywhere in the United States and in Canada. That's 833-288-3986. Or you can send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. It's EWTN's Open Line Thursday, live and in person today with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. From Rome to your home, with news from EWTN's Vatican Bureau, you can watch all the important events from Rome, even if you don't have TV access. Using the latest technology, we've made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. Watch live on EWTN's YouTube channel. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. First up today is Dominic in Hazleton, Pennsylvania, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Dominic, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, Father. How are you today? Okay. My question, Father, is about, and I think I heard you say before you didn't know much about it, the Chaplet of the Divine Mercy. I have a friend that's in really bad shape right now, and I suggested that prayer to him. What What do you know about the chaplain? I know our Lord, our our son, gave uh, Saint Faustina a prayer that anyone that says it will have mercy at the end of. Uh, if God forbid something would happen to him, is that is that pretty much true, or is that something that you really got to sit down and look at? Well. Uh presumably you're saying the chaplet and you're doing so for a right intention, then you've prepared your heart for heaven. Uh, it's similar to the nine first Fridays in the sacred heart devotion. And if you're going to all those things, you obviously are a religious person and preparing yourself for heaven. It's not a magical thing where just because you say it, you don't have to do anything, but we have to do our part and our part has to do with our freedom in, in preparing ourselves that way. But the chaplet itself, of course, is centered on the Holy Trinity and our, and our Lord's passion. And what more would we want when we, if we're going to die than that? I assume you're talking about someone when they die uh, to uh, go to heaven. So um, that would be my answer. It, it, it's true but it, you have to do your part. How's that, Dominic? Okay, Father, I appreciate your time, and you have a great day. Thank you very much. Surely. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Marie is a first-time caller in Seattle, Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Marie, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Yes. Hi, Father. I will tell you, you know, I I have a question for you, but because the the other person say about the divine mercy, so I have to tell you that in Vietnam, there is a father that did the divine mercy for 15 years, and he got a lot of people from outside of Catholic religion to join uh, the Catholic Church because the divine mercy, and then, you know what? And then a lot of people get cured of cancer and get jobs back and get financial back and everything. So actually, um, and then father and that father in Vietnam get 10,000 to 60,000 people to his church uh, before the COVID, you know, and then the communists decide to shut down and and he's, he's so sad. But then uh, in August, you know, and then in... Uh, October, the COVID become a full blown in you know, and then he said that it's got what, what's, what's your and question? Now he's on YouTube. Um, my okay, he's have a YouTube every day. So my question is that you know, if people are afraid to die, why the couple keep having babies? And then that is that is selfish for the couple because you know, then the babies would be afraid to die too, just like I. Yeah, I lost my mom, 
and my father is almost 90 years old and I'm 60 years old now. So I'm afraid to die too. And life is hard. Well, yeah, life's been hard for almost the entire history of the Catholic Church. Uh, people, millions have died from plagues or in battles or whatever. But God created the world to share his goodness. When I was a boy, we learned the catechism, the Baltimore Catechism. And the second question was, why did God make me? And the answer is, God made me to show forth his goodness and to make me happy with him in heaven. So for each particular person, God wants them to share in his goodness, and by especially by going to heaven. Now, how can God people heaven? He wants to share his divine eternal goodness if there are any people. <laughs> so there have to be people for that to happen, and uh, that's why we need babies. Um, and, and I don't quite understand. It's true that many children suffer, but many children don't. So uh, even the people that suffer, uh, uh, let's say they grow up in a poor household or they grow up with a disease, sometimes they get cured and sometimes they uh, free themselves from this and sometimes they manage to make a, a living. You know, my religious superior is a boat person from Vietnam. He spent two years with his father on the ocean getting here from the, uh, you know, from Vietnam to the United States. But he became a master's degree in chemistry, and uh, he's just a wonderful, wonderful man. Who would have wanted to miss all that? So uh, even though it was challenging when he was a child, he says he still remembers when the Viet Cong came to his house and put guns up against their heads and threatened to shoot them when he was a little boy. But, you know, his father managed to get him out, and he managed to get his mother out and their family they just given up and said, well, let's not have any kids, that would never have happened. God bless you, Marie. We appreciate the phone call today. That opens up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Ken is another first-time caller in the Republic of Texas listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ken, you're on with Father Milady. Well, thank you very much for taking my call. I I've got kind of an obscure question, but I understand that the sin of uh, looking at astrology, hiring a tarot card reader, or um, looking to turn the page before it's actually there. But at the same time, we have prophets, and I would like to know what the difference is. The difference is that prophets interpret the signs of the times by divine inspiration regarding what our future in relation to salvation is, not personally, but regarding what God has in store for us. And there, as, as a result, prophets, true prophets, speak in the name of God. People who practice horoscopes, tarot cards, Ouija boards, you can go down the list, are seeking to find out what God knows without consulting God. They're consulting a thing or they're consulting bird on trails, or the things that cannot give you this knowledge. It's phony. And if you want an example of that, when I was in the seminary, the seminarians, some of them decided that, just as a curiosity, one of them said he could read tarot cards. So they got a back of tarot cards and they started to play with them. This is all late 60s type stuff. 
And I was unnerved by this. I felt a presence in the room I could, can't explain. And I left. Well, they laughed at me. Well, they played with them for about a month. And then one day I said, because, uh, you know, once something ends, you don't immediately bring it up because it might cause issues. But when I finally felt free to do so, I said, by the way, whatever happened to the tarot cards? Oh, we threw those out. I said, really, why? We asked the tarot cards if there was an evil force behind them, and they answered yes. And we asked them if the evil force was the devil, and they answered yes. And I said, well, thank God the tarot cards seem to be more intelligent than some of the seminarians do. But no, it's, it's because you're seeking divine knowledge from someone who's not divine or something that's not divine in order basically to control your life in the way that only God can do that. And it's actually contrary to the first commandment and seriously contrary to the first commandment. And yet we have many, many examples of it today in this country. Does that make sense, Ken? That absolutely does. Father Milady, you are an inspiration. I appreciate your knowledge. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Ken. We appreciate the call. Wide open phone lines for you on this open line Thursday, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Matthew is in the U.K. watching us on YouTube today. And he says, after reading St. Teresa's Interior Castle and commentaries on it, I'm startled at how high the heights of spirituality are. It can be discouraging, and I rarely see it in the real world. Is that just the state of the world we presently find ourselves in, that we are that far away? Well, I'm glad you asked this question, Matthew, because the Interior Castle is a wonderful book, and it has many, many spiritual insights. There are people who feel intimidated by it because they don't understand that it's basically all about love. It's the same analysis you'd make of a married couple as they're growing in love. So, you know, basically the interior castle seeks to summarize the so-called three ages of the spiritual life, which are traditional, the purgative, the unitive, and the illuminative, and illuminative and unitive ways, which I always say is like spiritual childhood, spiritual adolescence, or teenagerhood and spiritual maturity. In a similar way, in a marriage, you have the honeymoon. Who would want to live without the honeymoon? But the honeymoon doesn't last forever, and people who think it should are fooling themselves. Then you have the time when they're growing together, and uh, it's almost like teenagerhood. You know, when the honeymoon ends, you say, oh dear, I have to live with this person for the rest of my life. You finally, the scales emotion fall from your eyes and uh, you have all the difficulties of raising children in middle age and all those things. But then old age also has its own challenges. It should have a much more peace to it because you're used to the whole idea. Um, that doesn't mean to say it's easy, but you're used to it. You're not surprised by it. So in a similar way in the interior castle, we have the growth in love, and you could also make an analogy to people's growth as a person. You know, childhood has its challenges. Teenagerhood, oh dear. You know, I taught teenagers for years, and, you know, they don't have an identity, which is strange. 
And, and then when you reach maturity, supposedly, you're also schooled enough in what it means to be a person that you can do these things without people telling you what to do and things like that because you appreciate the issues. So it's true divine love is high and intimidating. I agree with you 100% about that. But we need to remember it's always just about friendship and you can't tell from the outside. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still a couple of open phone lines and plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Mary in the great state of Minnesota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Mary, you're on with Father Brian Mullady. Hello, Father. Thank you for taking my call. Okay. Well, I have a question about using the use of sacred spaces for non-sacred activities. I've done a lot of reading on this, and even on canon law. And at the church I belong to, <clears throat> they uh, have a school there, and I, I'm all for Catholic school. My kids went to a different Catholic school, because um, I haven't lived here my whole life, just a few years, but uh, in this town that I'm in now. But um, they have a school here, and they use their sanctuary, where, you know, the church, the place where they have Mass, as a stage for recitals plays where they're dancing around, um, and uh, they remove the altar and the ambo and everything. I don't know where they put it, but they have a gym that's fairly, that's pretty large. They also have a social hall, which is very large. It's bigger than the sanctuary, but they continue to have all these activities in the sanctuary, and I, I want to know what canon law and what really should be the practice, because uh, there's other things that go on. I mean, they, they talk about the Eucharistic revival and why people don't believe this is Jesus, and part of me thinks it's because of how we just treat our sanctuary. We don't treat it respectfully. I think maybe the Lutherans across the street, <clears throat> I've been to their services, they're more respectful in their sanctuary than us. Um, we don't have a tabernacle in there. Jesus is maybe present for nine minutes. I timed it a couple times. And I just want to know what your thoughts are on that issue. Well, did thank you, you. Did you ask your pastor? I did, and he's very... Uh, Defensive. I look at him, and I... He is, and I tried to be very nice about it. He actually approached me, and I told him... Because the thing is, uh, we have a couple of deacons. He's very defensive, and I think he's very modern. He's... he's was, I, I listened to him give a talk But what did on, he say? Did he give you a reason? He said that the, where I was from, uh, no, he thought it was just fine. He didn't give me a reason. He started picking on a parish I used to belong to and said that they did it too. And I said, no, they didn't. You know. Uh, okay, well, uh, first of all, um, I would suspicion that if you're not reserving the sacrament in the church, they probably feel that they could use it for other things. But they should use it. Uh, plays are fine or concerts as long as they're religious. And if there's a question about it, um, many times in Europe they have concerts in churches. 
uh, you should remove the sacrament while, while you do it. Uh, I think that would satisfy whatever the demands would be of canon law. But um, uh, if it's just to put on a play, um, I think that somebody is not really um, aware of either what the purpose of the Mass is or they're not fulfilling it the way they should. But sacred concerts would be all right, provided that you remove the sacrament. And the same with, uh, say, uh, maybe I, I remember when I was in uh, teaching in Catholic grammar school, we used to pantomime the Mysteries of the Rosary for Christmas in the sanctuary. So, and that was, those were very beautiful, but and we had paraliturgical services, which weren't the mass or the sacraments, but they were things that were oriented toward the uh, feast and that sort of thing. So that's pretty much what I would say to you. If you ask me the question about the tabernacle, I would be more specific about that. It's very clear the tabernacle should be in a sanctuary in a centrally located place in a church. So that would be more or less a violation of canon law. And you're right that uh, this is one of the things that has led to a lack of faith in the real presence. God bless you, Mary. Thanks so much for the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Felix is, Felix, rather, is in the great state of Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Felix, you're on with Father Brian. Um, yes, so I have a question. So my wife seems to think that is illegitimate because we got married in 2009 and we were welcomed into the church in 2012. She thinks that since our children were born—my older son was born before we were welcomed to the church, that he's considered illegitimate. Is that true, yes or no? Uh, I, no, I don't think so. Illegitimate and legitimate would be primarily matters for the civil law. And uh, you were certainly, I don't know what, what denomination you were before, or if you were any, if you were married by a justice of the peace. But, you know, this um, use of terms having to do with childbearing when marriage isn't involved uh, or if it is involved, it's involved the way people believed it was involved at the time, is very difficult to determine. Um, a bastard would basically be someone who's fathered outside of wedlock, mothered outside of wedlock. But uh, at the time, if you believed you were married, then they aren't really illegitimate. I know people have problems with this about other for other reasons. And uh, like let's say you get divorced, but are you annulled in the church? Some people think that that means their first two children are bastards and they never make their children a bastard. So therefore they won't get their marriage blessed in the church. This is, in my opinion, ridiculous. Ridiculous. Um, uh, uses of terms from the civil law and things like that. So that anyway, that's my opinion. No, they, the first child would be considered to be a bastard. 
After all, uh, you can inherit, <laughs> even though you were, if you wanted to inherit. Yeah, God bless you, Felix. We'll keep you in our prayers for sure. Uh, Michael's watching us on YouTube, and he says, When I say the Chaplet of Divine Mercy, I always offer it for the souls in purgatory, especially those having no one to pray for them by name. Is that a proper use of the Chaplet? Well, again, I told you I don't know a great deal about the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. However, like other prayers, like the Rosary or whatever, I would imagine that it can be uh, applied to that use also, because God never wastes prayers. So uh, if the person you're applying it to, when you're praying for them, doesn't need it, uh, then it's given, again, to the lowliest soul in purgatory, and you can certainly do the same thing yourself if you don't have any particular person you want to offer it for. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines and still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. James writes in, how can the concepts of an all-loving God and eternal damnation coexist? Oh, very easily. (laughs) (laughs) Because, uh, remember, it's not... God who damns us, he merely pronounces the judgment on what we've done for ourselves. And he always is holding out invitations to us to convert. Um, The problem is, again, we have to do our part, which means that we have to take him up on it. Now, if we don't take him up on it, and uh, let's say in the last moment of your life you refuse to repent, in other words, you want your way, not God's. All God does is say, fine, you want to be by yourself for all eternity? Great. I pronounce that judgment. That's what you're going to get. If your choice between me and you, you get yourself for all eternity, and that's hell. <laughs> <laughs> so um, remember, the primary punishment of hell is the deprivation of the vision of God, uh, not the fire and all that other stuff, even though there may be fire or not. There's always been a debate about that. What uh, I've, I've often wondered, so do you think that someone who might find themselves in that situation, are they, are they given enough of a glimpse of the beatific vision to know what they're missing? How does that work? No. The only, the only people who ever have enjoyed the beatific vision are for sure our Lord while he was on earth in his human nature. Not even Mary had a glimpse of the beatific vision. And there are some traditions that because Moses was the primary instrument of the old law, he had a glimpse of the beatific vision while on earth, out of time. And, of course, the proponent of the new law that would have had this would have been St. Paul. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Only God knows. And so you have Moses with the shining face, and you have Paul, but that that's a, a theological opinion. Some people would even extend it to the apostles because they were the foundation stones of the church. But certainly, if such a thing were given, uh, for one thing, once you have it, you can't turn away from it. Um, it would have to be completely a miracle and completely uh, out of the ordinary way that God wills us to attain the beatific vision. It just seems to my small mind that... In order for something to be that degree of ultimate punishment, 
you would also you would almost have to have some knowledge of what you're missing in order for it to be penit- you know well we do, we do in the sense that we know where we be with Jesus and Jesus mm-hmm. also gave us a glimpse of the resurrection of the dead what we will be like but the beatific vision is basically no not a concept we don't limit god in any sense to our concepts we're more captured by him than he's captured by us and it takes the place of a concept in your mind, the infinity of God. So once you experience that, you, you can't lose it. It's just not possible. Back to the phones we go. Michelle is another first-time caller in the great state of North Carolina listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Michelle, you are on with Father Milady. Thank you. Surely. Hi, Father. I have a question about, um, I'm Roman Catholic, and my husband is Greek Orthodox. We do not have a Greek Orthodox church in our community. I have been going to Mass. He has just started coming to Mass with me. Is he allowed to give confession to a Catholic priest, and is he allowed to receive Holy Communion through the Catholic Church? Well, I don't know specifically what the canon law is regarding the Eastern Church. Um, but I do believe that we're in schism, of course, we're not, they're not heretics, we're in schism. And so in the case of a lack of the ability or the impossibility for them to make use of a priest of their own um, right, because it really is a matter of rights, uh, they could make use of a Catholic priest if he was willing to do it. You know, one thing I found very weird is the greatest animosity of all is between the Greek Orthodox and us. (laughs) And, you know, the Pope's bent over backwards to try to have some kind of union with the Greek Orthodox. And the monks at Mount Athos excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople for even talking to the Pope. So, and the worst wedding I ever had was Roman Catholic Greek Orthodox because the girl was Roman Catholic. She wanted to be married in her parish church and the boy wanted to be married with the Greek ceremonial, you know, with all the crowns and stuff. So I called up our chancery and I said, "Can this?" oh yeah, sure, no problem. So they came the next week and I said, uh, okay, no problem. He says, yes, there's a big problem. My Greek priest says he's not setting foot in a Roman church for any reason whatsoever. And I said, well, I can get you permission to be married in the Greek church. He says, I want to be married in my parish church. <laughs> So I thought, well, this isn't, I won't tell you how it was resolved, but uh, it wasn't really resolved very satisfactorily. But I believe he can go to communion in the Catholic Church. Yeah, and I, th- and I, am, I am not a canon lawyer, mm-hmm. but just from having questions like this answered uh, mm-hmm. over the years, if I'm not mistaken, in the, and the, 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 the qualifier here is that there isn't a Greek Orthodox right, Church exactly. available to you in your area. But I believe that that it is okay to uh, avail yourself of the sacraments in the Roman Church. But if I'm not mistaken, our Greek brothers and sisters would not return that favor. No, not yeah. at all. No. Yeah. Does that help at all, Michelle? It does. Thank you. So in other much. words, they won't let us go to communion there. That's right. So, yeah. <laughs> That's right. God bless you, Michelle. Well, one thing you've done by calling the show is you'll have a lot of people praying for you yes. and your husband. Bob is in the great state of Michigan, listening on I Heart Radio. Bob, you are on with Father Brian. Hey, how you doing, Father Brian? I'm okay. 
Okay. I was wondering, um, here recently, uh, Pope Francis wrote a, um, a letter to Father uh, Martin, James Martin. You know who that is? I do know who it is, yes. And he seems to send him blessings and things like that for the outreach program. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Father Martin is openly gay. But yeah. I wondered, has the church's uh, position changed on gay being a sin or not? Uh, no, the church's position has not changed on gay being a sin. But following the admonition, the love of the sinner be connected to the heinous character of the sin. What we've done is been more friendly to gays and more welcoming, but the real attitude presumes, not as Father Martin wishes, but that if you are a gay person, that you will not have sex. So you'll be chased. Anymore, just like Which a we are all called to be. That's right. A heterosexual person is called the same thing. But unfortunately, uh, he has joined the more militant part of the gay movement where they're actually trying to make it normal and natural, which we cannot hold. Does that clear it up for you, Bob? Well, I, I was wondering, but it seems like uh, Pope Francis would want would to say exactly what you just said about it, though. Uh, you know, I in the pontificate of Pope Francis... I've heard hundreds of times Pope Francis would want to say this, but he doesn't. In other words, it's not clear what he thinks about things often. He, he's not a person who strives for clarity, let's put it that way. Now, when it comes to this, being nice to a person or encouraging someone with the idea that you're not condemning him as a person is not the same thing as approving of being gay as natural as that's right uh, heterosexuality. Yeah. Very good. Thanks, Bob. We appreciate the call today. Probably still, we could probably squeeze in a call or two if you pick up the phone right now and call us at eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three. 288-3986. Be sure to join us for Family Theater Classic Radio. I love a good radio drama. This Sunday night, 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Terry would like to know, how can I best respond with love to my atheist and gender-confused sibling? Well, just by doing things with that person that doesn't underline this difference. So have a nice meal together, for instance, or uh, you know, read a book you both enjoy that's not compromising. Uh, and you just enjoy each other's company. But you, certain things, I have to do this with my own siblings. You just stay away from certain topics of conversation, that's all, and try to find something you can agree on and then enjoy yourself on that. But uh, if they want to know what you think, they'll tell you, believe me. <laughs> but most of them don't want to know what you think, and they think they already know it, and sometimes they're right. You know, it's interesting. I think we've lost the, you know, there was a, a time not too terribly long ago when, um, you know, individuals could unite around a common interest. 
Right. Without letting everything else in the world crash down upon them while they're enjoying that. Where everything is PC or not PC. And, uh, of course, part of that's the Internet. They don't know how to relate to people anymore because they're too busy relating to their machines. Um, I never thought I'd be governed by text message by my superior who lives down the hall. <laughs> but uh, it's, I guess, a lot less compromising to him. Uh, not the present superior, but another superior I had. <laughs> Alan wants to know, how do we balance an absolutist view on morality with the catechism's teaching on following our own conscience? Oh, well, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Uh, following your conscience is absolutist because your conscience teaches you what's absolutely right and absolutely wrong and allows you to excuse yourself if what you did and you thought was wrong is actually right. But it's based on a, a higher law than ours, which is the natural law. And if the, if the conscience decides against the natural law, it's called an erroneous conscience. One of the problems we have is that I remember one bishop stated that as long as you're following your conscience, the priest has to help you. And I thought, okay, so my conscience tells me it's okay for me to fly a plane to the World Trade Center. So the priest has to help me get the plane and pilot training in order to do that? No way. Uh, the little phrase erroneous and correct was omitted from that statement. A correct conscience, which is absolutist sometimes, thou shalt not. It doesn't say, I recommend that, okay? <laughs> That teaches us, that helps us to apply to our lives what the objective good and evil is. It's not the same as, well, um, on my particular case, even though it's against what the uh, commandments state, I might have the ability to just fudge a little for me. Uh, and, and No, it's not that at all. It's not a subjective morality, though I admit as John Paul II said in Splendor of Truth, the conscience today has become an oracle, which it is not. It's a syllogism of reasoning that implements more general truths, some of which, not all, are absolutist. How long since you've taught high school? <laughs> Oh, 30 or 40 years. Well, Ben wants to know, what resources would you recommend for a high school moral theology teacher? Well, uh, we didn't have the catechism then. I'd just use the catechism, especially if they were juniors, because they're not stupid, you know. They can understand that. But when I went, was doing it, there was no book or anything. And the books, as Mitch was pointing out, he had the same problems, Father Mitch when he started to do it in high school teaching. So what I used, I'll tell you, my creative teaching methods, <laughs> is there were four quarters in this school. So the first quarter we read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis and discussed sin and the devil. The second quarter we dealt with the punishments. They didn't read it, but I gave them a map of purgatory from Dante. And so we discussed the seven capital sins and what they were. The third quarter, we had the four cardinal virtues by Joseph Pieper. And the fourth quarter, we had the four loves by C.S. Lewis. And uh, so that was uh, helpful to me, but it allowed me to teach eternal truths 
uh, without um, having to deal with these rotten books from the 70s. And Leonard says, uh, I have been told there are two attributes of God, transcendent and imminent. Can you explain these traits? Oh, well, eminence means that God is present, is more present to me than I am to myself, that he's present in the world. The religion which does not hold that God is eminent but only transcendent is the Muslim religion. God is so other, he can't be eminent in the world. Man can't be made an image and likeness, and we can't really relate to him at all as a person. Um, Transcendence means that he, in his infinity, uh, he's uh, has no beginning and an absolute perfection. So the problem comes how you explain creation and God being eminent in creation without changing God. And the traditional solution for that is in St. Thomas, which is that there's a real relation between creation and God, but no real relation between God and creation. So God isn't modified, but it's the world that's modified to be like him. And finally today, Bethany would like to know how are Christians supposed to react to the death penalty being used today? Uh, Well, as they always did, um, the Holy See is obviously very much against the death penalty. But they fall short of saying it's a sin because they can't say that. It's not the Catholic tradition. And, in fact, the state does have a right to punish, even to the point of invoking the death penalty. But for people in the 20th century that experienced mass genocide, based on race or whatever, we want to hold, point out that this has to be very, very... John Paul II said, rare if ever. But um, we have to affirm that we um, uh, hold for the right to life But the death penalty, if it's properly applied, affirms the right to life. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless.